Hey everyone, welcome to a special morning edition of Manufacturing Hub. Very excited to have Marcus on. We'll get to him and his background in just a minute. If you guys are new here, welcome. If you've been here before, welcome back. If you're new here or this is the first time you're catching us because we're at a slightly different time than we normally are on Wednesdays, we, we love to have a very active chat. So if you guys have questions or comments, please feel free to go throw them in the chat and we will do our very best to go ahead and address those live during the show. If we don't get to them live during the show, we'll do our very best to address them after the show. And please feel free to go ahead and have conversations in and amongst yourselves during this. A couple of other quick things. Again, we want to thank Corner Automation for sponsoring Factory Automation uh, the, the, uh, I'm sorry. We want to thank Corner Automation for for sponsoring the Factory Hardware Reinvented theme. I'm very excited to, to see where we're going to conclude this with Marcus, but it's been a great series of conversations. Um, if you guys have not caught David Nichols, Bill and Chuck, or David Nichols was episode 127, uh, Bill Rainier and Chuck Ridgway were episode 128, and Davide uh, Pascucci was episode 129 just last week. Please feel free to go ahead and check those out, either live on YouTube to go ahead and watch the videos back, or go ahead and check them out in podcast form when they come out. Those are all really awesome. And then the last bit of housekeeping for everyone is if you have not seen Vlad and I will be live tomorrow afternoon. We're doing a live build with, with some of the Siemens folks talking about their industrial edge and their industrial information, leveraging that as a how we go build the technology stack of the future. So we're really excited about that. Vlad and I are going to get together in person in order to go do that. And so if you haven't already gone to hit the button to, to subscribe to that, please feel free to, to go ahead and do. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome officially everyone um, to Manufacturing Hub. This is episode 130. We've got Marcus Ramil from Digitalium on. Marcus, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me and greetings from San Diego. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today, Marcus. Really appreciate uh, the time. Before we dive into maybe the hardware slash technical topics and the things that you're working on, could you give us a little bit of a background? How did you get into industrial automation and ultimately walk us through where you are today? Yes, I'm, I'm happy to give you guys an, an overview of uh, where I'm coming from and where I'm, I'm going to. I'm originally born in Germany and in the South, went into the industry in a traditional way in Germany with an apprenticeship to a mechatronic and then got my first job actually at a machine builder for textile machines, wiring up complex machinery. And at one day the boss asked me or told me actually, hey, we sold this machine to Malaysia, by the way, you are setting it up there. and that for some coincidence, brought me into uh, field service and explored uh, the world to me, 30 countries, four continents, and now 15 years in the USA. After this uh, time in building machines and servicing them, I did a further education, electrical engineering, went then into the programming, industrial automation, PLC, mainly Siemens for a bigger machine builder in the automotive, medical device, and photovoltaics field. And through them, I had the opportunity 15 years ago to move from the German headquarter to the U.S. subsidiary, 
was then a, a year in California on a project, production ramp up, then almost three years in Albuquerque, New Mexico, another big plant, production ramp up, life cycle management, retrofits, build up the maintenance team. And I live now for 12 years in the Atlanta, Georgia area, which I call now home. From there, I further developed into field service and field service management. So I led field service departments with up to 50 field service technicians and was responsible to get the right guy at the right location with the right skill set. Did my MBA in parallel at Georgia State University. And in my last W2 role, I led field service for North America for another German machine builder. Unfortunately, with COVID and the impact to the business in life services went down the hill and we separated and that was the founding stone for Digitalitum, where I now focus on bringing digitalization tools to the industry and bring my industrial and engineering expertise into it. And that's where we are now. And currently, as I said, I'm in San Diego, California, at a client and helping them to implement a couple of the tools I have sold into their manufacturing process. Just to dig a little bit deeper, maybe into that last point. So you guys obviously bring solutions from other providers. What is your role like exactly? You help manufacturers integrate? Do you help educate the manufacturers on what's possible? you help them establish a relationship to that OEM? Like what is, do you consider yourself maybe a consultant, an integrator? What would be that description? Yes, we have partnerships with 10 different suppliers or technology partners. As we know, they provide tools of different virtual reality, augmented reality, IOT and additive manufacturing tools. On one side, as they are all foreign, mostly from Europe and Germany, we help them with the market entry into the U.S. market. And on the other side, we consult manufacturers, machine builders and system integrators of finding the right tool to solve their problems. Then we are also part of the implementation on site and the partner throughout the life cycle of that product. The other question, if, if I may, Marcus, on that side is how did the, maybe the idea of where, or where you are today came to be, was that a very like explicit business model that you were trying to pursue or were you trying to offer like integration services? How did you like come up essentially with Digitalium and the offerings that you guys provide today? So in the more or less last five years, I jumped on this digitalization bandwagon by, by learning more what's actually into it and understanding it. And I still see it as a solution for a lot of problems and dilemmas we have in the industry, in machine building and, and manufacturing, industrial automation and, and all of that. And it was always my focus to, in this digitalization journey, to get higher and get better. And that was more or less the driver for me when I started my own company to focus on that topic. First, I focused purely on, on consulting services, production automation, Lean Six Sigma, all of that stuff. And then, as it is now always with coincidence, 
I found this partners, they found me and started with one and uh, now we're with 10 and I call it now the, the digitalization uh, toolbox and uh, hopefully soon we're able to make this toolbox uh, even bigger and uh, on top of that the vision is to grow the company uh, from a, a one person show into uh, a big corporation as uh, the potential is out there. Uh, the need is in the market. I still see a lot of companies and corporations falling behind on the digitalization journey and specifically with the low hanging fruits the tools. I think you can get the, the biggest achievement of growing in that digitalization journey. Awesome. Let me uh, throw like maybe one last question at you before I let uh, Dave jump in. So I'm curious. Where is maybe the disconnect like from the manufacturers when you talk to your end customers from like finding out and maybe implementing some of these solutions on their own, right? Because I think that everyone is doing research, everyone's going to trade shows and understands there's like different things, but is it the fact that they lack somebody to lead that change? Is it the fact that they don't have the people to implement? Is it because they simply cannot find the right technologies that fit for them? What are maybe the conversations you're having with them and where do those roadblocks uh, lie for them? And all of the above. Okay. So it's a lot of different reasons. Uh, there is the uh, hindrance to change this mentality. We are always doing it since the last 20 years and that's how it somehow works. It's also the missing education of understanding what's actually out there. People are often not even aware what different tools are available in the year 2023 and what is all possible. When I do a demo of certain products, there a lot of people are blow away and say, oh, wow, I wasn't aware that this is actually there and that this is actually possible. And a lot of companies still don't put much focus and therefore budget and personal in these topics, while others actually put focus and budget on it. And I also see that they're in their digitalization journey way, way ahead. And I see a two glass situation, people who really focus on it and are far behind and, and have already a, a lot of stuff implemented and uh, offer all the services and have solved a lot of problems and dilemmas. And I see the other class in uh, falling uh, behind in my point of view, but they don't see that they fall behind because they're sitting in their own little uh, bubble and somehow their system works and they are not willing to change or cannot change or not aware that they need to change. Yeah, that definitely uh, makes sense. Dave? No, Marcus, I, I think it's really interesting. And I, I appreciated how your journey, how, how much of your journey, including all the different educations, continue back some of those field service opportunities for, from starting in field service and being sent to Malaysia to, to running field service for a German company. Do you have any interesting things that you learned? So obviously with Digitalium, you are not doing field service, right? Like you might do some of it, but the goal is much higher. So are there any interesting lessons learned that, that you had from all of those years in field service? 
there are many lessons learned. I think that actually field service is one of the best profession you can get into it, specifically if you're young. Mm -hmm. Why? Because you get a, a lot of compact experience in a short time. You get thrown into the deep cold water a lot of times where you need to learn to swim. On top of that, if you do international field service, it just opens your horizon when you travel to foreign countries, you explore other languages, other cultures, you have to deal with this local people in all the different hierarchies from the worker, the maintenance, the plant manager, the higher ups. And that is so much learning and also builds yourself as a personality. So I don't want to miss that experience from more than 10 years. Absolutely. No, I think that's interesting. And can you, I know you were talking about how, when you go and you work with companies on the digital side with your, with your toolkit, how there are some companies who are in year 20, in year 2040, and there are some companies in year, can you give us maybe a little bit more overview before we start talking about a couple of particular tools as to what you're seeing with most companies that you consult and work with, please? I think I uh, talked already about that, that I see this two class situation and going deeper into this. I see that the big corporations, the S&P 500s, for example, the big manufacturers with uh, thousands of people and millions of revenue, mm -hmm. they have also, a lot of them have the budgets and the people in place and have a digitalization strategy already and, and working on that and are somewhere uh, in their journey. While the small and medium manufacturers, in my point of view, the, a lot of them at least, don't have the budget, don't have the specific people focusing on these topics, which then let them fall behind on their journey because everybody is just uh, busy hustling in doing their day-by-day -day job. And let's say a digitalization project is put on the lead engineer as a little side project, but he's working already a hundred hours a week and mm -hmm. there's just not much time to, to get this little side project further. That's unfortunately an, an issue in the industry. What I see a lot. The other one is then there is, for example, this lead engineer who is smart, who wants to develop something on its own while it might be easier to buy a product or a solution from the market and implement that and have a bit a better ROE and have that achievement of getting something out of a value out of it. Absolutely. No, I think that that's interesting. Can we dive into maybe a couple of the tools that you're using? And if you've got a couple of examples mm -hmm. of how you're seeing them being implemented, I think that would be very interesting, please. Yeah, as I said, we have a whole toolkit or a toolbox of different tools and I actually think came up with the word digital tools. Uh, let me explain you how I get into this. As traditionally when we're in maintenance engineering we have our toolbox and in our toolbox are pliers, screwdrivers, wrenches and some other tools categories and in each category 
we have a bunch of individual things. We have a lot of different screwdrivers. One, mm -hmm. one screwdriver enough uh, or one screwdriver is not enough. You need different sizes and you need different shapes like a flathead and uh, Phillips and maybe uh, some others for that specific task. And the challenge is always for your specific task, you have to use the right tool and only with the right tool, you get the value of getting this uh, job done. I bring the example up of a, a special screw. Let's imagine we have a flathead screw and we have a Phillips screwdriver and we want to use that to either open or close that screw. Does it work? No, it doesn't. You can use a flathead uh, for a Phillips every now and then, but that's about it. It may work the other way around. If you have a Phillips screw and a flathead screwdriver and the flathead is in the size so that it fits into the Phillips, then you might have a chance. And the point again is you need the right tool to do your job. And in the digitalization field, it's the same. In the year 2023, there are so many different applications out there. And again, every application or every digital tool there serves a specific value uh, and, and uh, a specific need and gives a specific value, like, like your tools. And so the challenge again is using the right tool to do that thing, what you want to do and get the most out of it. Um, and this understanding selecting the right tool uh, that's where i see the challenge as people are overwhelmed um, they don't really know what's going on or they have this belief that this magic uh, letterman multi-tool which can do all and everything will be the solution but we both know that let's take this example of a letterman is not the best tool in every case you may use your letterman if you're out in the woods on a hiking tour and you don't have anything else, you also don't want to carry your big toolbox with you in this case, then it might be good. But if you, let's say, work in your shop, um, you better work uh, with the tools out of your toolbox and not with your multi-tool. Um, and that's again, the same in the digital world as well. And so the, the value, what we bring in, we have a understanding of on the other side, what tools are on the market. We understand the problems. And so we bring that together to consult, to bring the right tool for the right application for the best value. And then be also part of that implementation as that's an important thing as well. If you buy this new shiny tool, nobody knows how to use it. People may not want to use it because they heard always oh, the digital things. It may take my job away and we better don't use that. Then the thing sits around, collects dust, costs a lot of money and the uh, frustration is there. And actually a lot of digital uh, implementations fail because of uh, many of these reasons. And that's a very important like point I'd like to dig into a little bit deeper, Marcus. So again, I guess you have to curate on one side the right tools, right? So you talk to the companies that have developed a certain tool. And again, maybe they're not the right fit for, let's call it the US market or the North American market. So you have to have some kind of a process to evaluate their solution, right? And then you have to evaluate mm -hmm. also 
manufacturers, right? So at the end of the day, the tool that might be good for a Fortune 500 is not going to be good for, let's say, a mid-sized manufacturer. So I'm curious, like what kind of processes maybe, or what kind of, maybe like just industry feel that you have for evaluating like both sides or what does that even look like? What do what are some of the conversations that you would have with a tool manufacturer about bringing them into like your offerings and ultimately what kind of conversations then would you have with manufacturers to figure out, do they have the people, do they have, as you said, do they have the intentions to actually roll this out and ultimately will they succeed? Because again, I think nobody wants to fail with the wrong approach or tool. Yeah. That's actually a, a very big question and I, I need to break it down. How do I select the tools for my toolkit? More or less, I look out what's on the market uh, or people approach me. I have to have them all in the same kind of target group. So the, the kind of user group needs to be in a defined area, which for me is small, medium business, manufacturing, machine building, and industry-wise, uh, automotive, medical device. Uh, why? Because I worked in both of these uh, industries and have a lot of uh, experience and uh, connections. Plus, Southeast USA uh, is, is dense with this uh, industry. So there's a, a lot of stuff uh, nearby. Going the other side to the client side, I always evaluate in where they are and what is the problem they want to solve and then finding the right tool for that. And if that all matches, it may get into a sales and then into an implementation. And if this doesn't match, then we have to find somebody else. It's that easy. Interesting. And so you work with them throughout the process of like figuring out if there's a match, but you also are there for the implementation and coaching. Like what does that maybe, let me like rephrase that. What is the process of let's call it like, do they trial the tool first on, let's say like a subset of their, let's say factory, or maybe one factory out of, let's say 10, do they try and roll this out across all the factories? Like maybe what does the implementation of some of these tools look like when, you know, there is an agreement, Hey, this seems like a good idea. Let's try and figure out a way to solve this. Yeah, so during the sales process, we already talk about how we can do an implementation and the, the implementation is always a custom, but it also is a step-by-step -step approach. So you start slow, small, get something to work and then roll it out further. For example, you set it up in, in one machine or one production line first let it run there, let people get familiar with it, and then add it into other lines. And then from there, if the company has more subsidiaries into other subsidiaries planned, and then maybe even roll it out worldwide, always depending. So it's, it's a custom process defined by how the situation is on a client side. And again, with the experience in the industry we have, we're able to come up with a custom plan and make that a success. And just to maybe take a step Let back. Me... Go ahead, Dave. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I think Vlad and I, we're probably not going down the same train of thought. But Marcus, I guess as we're talking about these tools, are you typically replacing hardware? Are you typically replacing training materials? Are you typically filling in a gap? 
where do these tools in the toolkit generally fit when you work with clients? Uh, again, it depends of uh, what this tool is. As with the 10 different tools we have in the portfolio, uh, it's, it's a wide portfolio of, of different things and different technologies as we touch additive manufacturing, IoT, data matrix code reading and verifying uh, augmented reality and, and virtual reality from a technology point. And then we break it down in specific tools. Maybe we should just uh, jump into a quick overview or uh, throw uh, a few examples out. One tool uh, we have, for example, is a tool for uh, manufacturing shop floor planning. So let's say you want to build a new factory or you want to reorganize the shop floor of an existing factory. The traditional way of doing it is either you use cardboard boxes and you set up that that do that setup and then play around with it with cycle time and ergonomics and actually measure it with your that's the very old approach nowadays you use your cat tool 2d or even 3d solidworks autocad and you plan it there the issue there is you watch it actually in 2d again on on your screen you may run a couple of meetings then you hammer it in stone and then you figure it out when it's really out there that it doesn't look really the way how it was really planned and your operators complaining that some stuff is unergonomical. Uh, you didn't foresee that there's a, a short and a tall people which have other uh, reaches and, and all of that. And that's where this uh, virtual reality tool comes in where you'll be able to plan your shop floor in virtual reality so you have your goggles on, you move things around, you can import CAD models and move them the way how you want it in your perfect layout. And then in a performance mode, you're actually able to work in there and, for example, manufacture your product. And as an outcome, you're getting uh, cycle time information and performance and ergonomic information. And with this information, you can optimize everything. You even have the opportunity to bring for example your workers in and let them do actually the process and capture their feedback as well and get for example the short and the tall person to get the the, the perfect thing out of it and uh, what is the outcome of it you planned it perfectly all the issues are, are solved and when you then hammer it in stone it just works fits and runs and you deliver on time, which is always an uh, important aspect as well. And I'm assuming and, you can do uh, it quicker, right, Mars? Yes, take you uh, like there's also a, a time saving involved uh, in my point of view as well. And that's now an example <clears throat> of using the technology virtual reality, which you can do a lot of different things. You can play games in it. You can do training or you can plan a shop floor with that specific tool. And it's really interesting as an example, right? And I've not personally been through that kind of an exercise, but it definitely makes perfect mm -hmm. sense. And I think I've mentioned this in the conversation we had off stream, but I guess you see it in the movie, The Founder, when they're trying to optimize the, the perfect layout for a fast food restaurant using chalk on like the, essentially they were on a basketball court, I believe, and they were doing all the movements, how the people would move as 
that kind of like chain was being orchestrated but it makes perfect sense to use something like virtual and augmented reality in this case to uh, facilitate that and make it a lot simpler so that's really yeah cool. that that's the example how technology can help to make a planning process better faster and with a better outcome mm -hmm. and it also helps to visualize things in a better way and that's what it's all about the world is getting more and more uh, complex and we need to use the right tools to make it a little less complex and another example with augmented reality is for example in in field service or maintenance we have often the issue flat on using the us example you get into a factory in front of a machine and now you're looking up uh, you need a, a wiring diagram and a manual to uh, solve uh, a specific issue let's say we're in a big plant and traditionally you have to walk a mile into the maintenance room and there's this big wall of uh, paper binders with all the manuals for the whole factory I, i'm pretty sure you're nodding your head that you have seen this and usually um, they're like disordered they're not always there they're like a few revisions that comes on top so first of all you're searching for a while to find the right binder and then in the thousand pages of your binder you have to find that right page of that wiring diagram and if mm -hmm. you're very lucky your co-worker actually ripped out that page and didn't put it back <laughs> then some companies tell me oh we are already digitalized we have everything on our network or shared mm -hmm. drive the way how it looks then is you have a, a convoluted folder structure of hundreds of folders and subfolders and in the folders perfectly organized you have then file names like 123abc.pdf and you have to use the windows explorer search function to search something and you get a digital result either you get 1 million hit of a list of your search term so that means you don't find anything or you find nothing so again, my mm -hmm. point, you don't get the information what you need. Therefore, the risk is high that you do something wrong and you may cause uh, unplanned downtime with that. That's where now technology comes in place in form, for example, of augmented reality. Let's imagine you come to your machine, you scan a code with the device you have in your pocket anyway, which is this magic smartphone. With this, you augment the 3D model of that machine on top of it, and you actually see the bill of material, and it identifies where that part is in the machine, and then the technical document is linked to that, which means as a quintessence, you get the information you need at the location where you are. Therefore, you're doing, you can do your job based on the real information, and the chance that you're doing your job good is, or that you succeed is uh, pretty high. What does it take to implement something like that? Because again, I think I've struggled through that problem many times. And I, I think that it would still have to be to some extent like a rehaul of, so you would run some kind of an application, I'm assuming on the local server, you would need to organize yeah. everything inside of there. You would need to tag your machines with uh, QR codes and maybe have some kind of a server that obviously services those URLs. Like what does an implementation look like for that? 
Yes, you need to have all the documents in electronic form and you need CAD files, best 3D files of that equipment. There is no alternative to scan, to do actually a 3D scan of that equipment and uh, using that. The answer on how complex that is to implement always depends on how much, how, how detailed you want to have the data and on how many repeating uh, things you have. Let's say if you have a, a factory where everything is, is individual, uh, it takes of course longer as if you have like a serial mm -hmm. product and that piece of machinery is used in 10 or uh, 20 different applications, uh, then the whole uh, copying and uh, duplicating effect comes in, which then of course helps uh, in, in lowering the amount of time more or less to put all the, the data in. So again, it depends. Mm -hmm. uh, it is, for example, also a solution from a machine builder point of view. And if they have a, a machine which they sell, let's say a hundred times uh, a year, mm -hmm. they only need to develop that model one time and then they can sell it a, a hundred times. And that's where the big win is or could be or value be. And it's um, an interesting... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I agree with you that, uh, yes, the, the implementation and specifically the, the customization can be a, a big task and a, and a big hurdle, which always needs to be evaluated at the beginning in the purchasing process, if it makes sense or not. Mm -hmm. I, I was going to say, and it's an interesting, I think, not necessarily like a stepping stone, but I guess like you can extend that further, right? I think a good example of that, when we were at Automate, I don't know if you saw the Dimension booth, but what I found like really cool is you could then call, let's say you're on the phone and you're looking at that machine, you're looking at the diagrams and let's say you can't figure it out for whatever reason, yeah. you can then call in an engineer from that company. And while you have, let's say the machine augmented, they can also help yes. you with support and you can probably tie in the metrics of that machine into that same application. So I think there's a lot of like potential beyond just even like the diagram. So I think it's certainly going to. Um... Yeah, the visual support, that's uh, what, what you talk about. That's another tool uh, we have in our portfolio, which is another great help where you can help a person in the field of sharing specific mm -hmm information from an expert which is somewhere other geographically and again this magic tool which nowadays everybody has in their pocket and it doesn't matter if it's a corporate phone or a personal phone it just works and why wasting all the time and just watching social media and adding some actually digital tools to it to make it more available and I see a lot of power actually in this device in maintenance and field service on one side falls all under the, the topic of a connected worker. The one is getting the information you need at the location you are to do your job. That's one part of that connected worker thing. And the other one is use this device to capture data of where you are and bring it back uh, into the system. For example, when you do a, a preventive maintenance task, uh, let's say replacing a filter or so, making a picture of the old filter dirty, 
the new filter clean date and time and location mm -hmm. and with this information when that particular filter was replaced when you do it next time you actually can compare the pictures to then for example optimize the duration of your maintenance do I have to do it every two months or is it maybe every four or six months uh, enough too? And you only can do that with the data. And again, this device can help to capture that. Of course, always in combination with a specific tool or system where this data then comes all uh, together and get uh, evaluated. Makes sense. Dave, thoughts? Absolutely. I will say that Marcus has a really good comment from the comments talking about a virtual pre-organization of shop floor processes will save a lot of time and money for companies benefit increasing with more complex the process will be and i thought that was a really good comment i wanted to make sure that we can get marcus's comment on what marcus was saying thank you both marcus's for that really excited to continue this but first we want to thank the folks over at horner automation group for sponsoring this theme. horner automation is a division of horner electric Horner Electric can trace its roots back to 1949 when George and Mary Horner started their small family-run business, which is now a large, thriving family-run business. Horner Automation has been in operation for over 35 years and is headquartered in Indianapolis, Indiana. Horner designs, builds, and markets a wide array of industrial all-in-one controllers, consisting of programmable control, HMI, I.O., and networking, along with software and peripherals. Many of our automation products are manufactured and assembled in the USA. At Horner, we support our partners, distributors, and customers by providing quarterly factory training on our products and software, as well as an extensive YouTube presence of videos that include software and hardware tips, training, industry solutions, trade show clips, new product releases, and much more. Horner strives to provide value-added solutions for our customers. We have availability, an option for every budget, and incredible support and resources to help your project run smoothly. Everywhere you look, Horner Automation Controllers are there. Awesome. And thank you for the folks at Horner Automation for sponsoring this theme. Marcus, I want to take the conversation a bit in a different direction. I know that mm -hmm. you say that kind of as part of this digital toolkit you have you are working with at least one company doing additive manufacturing and maybe some of it not within the factory floor. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, please? Yes, uh, definitely. Additive manufacturing is getting, uh, I see, a big push in the industry as in general, it can produce complex parts faster and a lot of times also in a better price and with the technology advancements we don't have only plastic parts in 3d printed there are now a lot of different manufacturing methods for metal parts center and all the different categories so it is nowadays or can be an alternative to a cnc manufactured part the challenge we see on the market, specifically on the uh, manufacturing side, uh, talking in terms of uh, spare parts, for example, is that you, if you want to say, okay, I, I print my own parts, which sounds, first of all, easy, you need a whole, let's say, a printer park of different 3D printers, like a whole 
workshop. And the issue is then the same as when you say, I want to build my CNC workshop up with lasers and all the other tools. The efficiency comes in when you run your shop more or less 24 seven. If you just have the, the machine sitting there and you're doing a, a part per day, plus you have to have uh, specialized people operating it you need all this the, the tools and the material and everything price wise it doesn't make any sense so you better outsource it and and go to a cnc shop for example and here is where technology comes nowadays in place uh, you can do nowadays uh, manufacturing as a service where you send your drawing off into a platform and then uh, specific machine shops take that job, do it for you. It's all individually quoted and stuff like that. And for the additive manufacturing, uh, we're working with a platform called uh, Replique. They have 3D printing capability in the entire globe, in, in every continent and in a lot of different countries. And for international businesses, that can be interesting as, let's say, there's a German headquarter and an American plant. Traditionally, the part is manufactured in the headquarter and then sent over. And that always takes a lot of time. You have custom and all of, of these delays. Why not take the electronic file in a secure way through the cloud and print it near the location where you need it and then only go the short way. And that is manufacturing as a service in the cloud, what we offer uh, to our clients. That's so there's a, a marketplace? A unique concept. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like a marketplace. And then these guys help also with consulting services, helping Let's say you have a, a CNC manufactured part and you want that 3D printed. You cannot just take that drawing and print it. You may need to remodel it or make some modifications to this. And they help with that as well. Interesting. So they partner with different machine shops. I guess they like they mix. Yeah, they have a network of third party 3D printing shops in different 3D printing capabilities and the unique thing of them is that they do that all through a secure cloud because when you share this complex uh, or this data there's always the possibility that for example somebody would steal that information and then print uh, their part but they run it all through a, a secure cloud and actually that third party doesn't even see the, day, uh, the data, they go in a secure way into the printer. And uh, even if you would listen into it, you, you couldn't do anything with the data. That's and so that's the, the whole um, uh, intellectual property uh, security part, which plays a, a big role in all this uh, digital solutions as well. That's really interesting. That's, it sounds like yeah. an Uber offering for 3D printing, right? So it would be exactly. like Vlad has a machine and shop in his garage and he's capable of doing just this narrow segment, obviously, of parts and the request comes in and I get to say, let's say if it's whatever dollar amount that I'm willing to accept, I'll take it. It will take me, I don't know, seven yeah. days to produce. And that's very interesting. I, that's and interesting. there are, of course, other platforms uh, on the market as well, where 
it works exactly uh, like you said. If you have let the machine shop, you can work with that platform. The platform knows about your specific uh, capability of, for example, what machines you have and what size of uh, parts you can manufacture. Mm -hmm. And then if they see uh, jobs in that area, they uh, give it to you at a specific price and uh, you work them up. And the uh, client communication is all done uh, through the platform. So if there are any uh, quality issues or stuff like that, the platform handles that. And yeah, I see that more and more coming because on the other hand, it makes also life easier from a, a consumer standpoint. As I see, we got the Amazonization in the industry world as well. We as consumers, if we need something, we go to Amazon. We have a, a huge portfolio of gazillions of different articles and we just find it, order it, and we have it the next day. Mm -hmm. And the same expectation comes more and more from industrial clients as well. They don't want to go through a convoluted ordering processes, which take forever to get stuff. They want to have it through an online shop as well, which brings me to another example. We are offering now also a platform for machine builders to run their service business on. And one part of that is a customized spare part shop on a machine base. So the client gets a specific login and from there they see the spare parts fitting to their equipment and they just order it uh, through a shop. And then of course, all related technical documents are uh, linked to that as well. And uh, the big win is to make this, this ordering process faster and more efficient as when you deal with um, smaller machine builders, the ordering processes looks like this. Send an email to info at machinecompany.com. Yes, I need mm -hmm. that part. Okay, what part do you need? I need this, send me a picture. Okay, we need to identify. Oh, it can be this part. Two days later, you may get a quote and then you have to start the whole ordering process and. 10 emails go forward and backward and uh, a, a week goes into the land until an order is placed versus going to an online shop, identify the right part. First of all, only see the part which you really need, which fits to your specific machine. Price availability, you put it in the cart, put your credit card into it and you get it. And it's really interesting, right? Because I think those who have not been maybe in a maintenance department don't see it as a as a big problem. But once you experience it and you know that you have to store a lot of spares even when the lead time is, let's say, three to six months versus if yeah. you can go through a platform and it's two weeks, there, there's a lot of caused games that play into that as well. And, and it is a real issue because then you're stressed about getting that drive motor or like whatever the mechanical component may be from a manufacturer that, like I said, has a very long lead time. So it's also an actual yeah. problem. And like I said, it's hard to convey to someone who has not lived through like maybe that maintenance experience, but the problem is And with there. the whole supply chain issue situation, lead times for certain parts cycling, uh, skyrocketing, uh, even in the industrial automation part, uh, as I see your uh, background picture, uh, certain 
IO components or, or CPUs have lead times of a, of a year and, and longer nowadays. And that's really worrisome if you need to wait a year for a, for a specific part and you cannot really replace it with, with something else. And if this is, let's say, an electronic part, you even cannot 3D print it. You're stuck in that situation. No, definitely. It, it solves a real problem. Dave, what are your thoughts? I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting to see what the future of all of this will move to. Marcus, I, I know that we started the conversation by talking about your background and talking about kind of the, the haves and haves not with these digital tools. What is your projections for the next three to five years? Are we going to see many of those have not the people who are well behind catch up or what is going to happen to to the market in general with these digital tools so first of all there will be further development in more tools specifically in the ai area that area is, is exploding again the, the technology is now available and with this comes a lot of different use cases and applications and there will be many more going into very specific niche applications. On the implementation side or on the company side, I see two things. I see the people adapt to it and go with the digitalization journey and they will succeed. But I will also say that companies who do not put much effort into it may become the next Kodak or Nokia. It is unfortunately like that. Interesting. I, I was going to follow up with a question, like maybe from the solutions provider side, and maybe not necessarily a, a pessimistic view, but I think that a lot of startups have really good ideas, but ultimately fail to scale to a point where their business model makes sense, right? And I think that... The question then becomes for a manufacturer that's adopting some of these new tools, will these companies grow to a size that is sustainable and ultimately be there, let's call it in 10 to 20 years? And I, I want to say, like, how do we as an industry ensure and support the startup ecosystem to get to that size? Like, how do we... Yes. Like, don't let these companies almost, not necessarily die, but I think have the right structure in place that allows them to, to find a sustainable solution. That is a, a very good question and is unfortunately also a bit of the uncertainty. On the other hand, we have this uncertainty in the industry since forever. As if you just look 50 years back or yeah, 50, 60 years back after Second World War with when finally automation, at least basic automation came in, a lot of companies started becoming machine builders and a lot of them started as a one-man shop in, in a garage shop and then grew over time and now they're either mid-size or, or large companies and back then there was also the question, do I trust this guy? Will he succeed and will he be he or she be here in, in 10 years? So the questions are the same. How it works uh, specifically with the startups and in the digital space, we need to figure out, but it's definitely a 
a risk out there and in the evaluation of a, a partner, of a supplier that plays a role in whether are they financially stable and what will happen. And it's the same questions asked now or in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's again, like I, I don't think that I would have a, an answer to that question. I, I think it's just a matter of figuring out, like I guess on the end user side, what kind of a relationship you want, right? Because there's going to be advantages to like more mature companies, OEMs or solution providers. And there's going to be some other advantages to working with a a smaller company again, and there's going to be different risks. But I I think it's an interesting like landscape for sure, because there's a lot of innovation, but I think there's also a lot of kind of uncertainty of where all of it is going. But but in this landscape, there are also the big players and they're a bunch of uh, small players. And it's the decision of the customer of with who they feel more more comfortable in order to get into a, a partnership or a relationship for that uh, digitalization journey. As both versions, small companies versus big companies have both their pros and cons. Mm-hmm. Dave, what are your thoughts? Absolutely. And I'd, I was going to say, I'd like to add to that the fact that there are so many of these smaller startups with these different digitalization tools. I think it's inevitable that we see at least some number of them fail over the course of the next three to five years. And that will cause some issues with larger companies as they look to go move into which tools do we want. But I think if you've got a very compelling story, if you've got a very compelling use case, there are certainly opportunities that will allow these digitalization tools to succeed from smaller companies. But I think it'll be a very interesting next three to five years as we see who shakes out. Yeah. But again, with the the technology and the internet and what we all have, smaller companies also have the opportunity to grow and and get out into the market and it's not only a playing field for the big guys as at least in the past everything under the umbrella of digitalization was big large complex expensive so therefore only the big guys could afford it Mm -hmm. now i see prices coming down with this whole portfolio and variety out there so that it is also attractive for the small and medium companies to finally get on the digitalization bandwagon and do something and start implementing different tools and then later on systems to start their journey of getting better. That's uh, what it's all about, getting better and be able to provide more value to your customers. That's more or less what all, in a summary, this uh, digital things bring. Awesome. I, I, I love that. I think that this is amazing. Marcus, I want to ask you one of my most favorite questions uh, to really put you on the spot as to, we're, we're going to ask yeah. you to predict the future. And, and I know you've been giving us a bunch of very interesting future predictions, but as to if it's a, a digital toolkit or the adoption where do you see these being used more in the next three to five years? Good question. In, in general, I see everything, as I said, further developing as 
the needs of the market will change or the, the, the needs will get stronger. Um, I predict that, for example, in the future, you cannot just sell as a machine builder a piece of machinery anymore. You have to sell a piece mm -hmm. of machinery and uh, life cycle management or service spare parts platform with it. Otherwise, it will not be bought or it isn't, it's even specified in specifications that this is part of the delivery. Why? Because we have general industry trends and one of them is the whole labor shortage, specifically in the technical area, maintenance, engineering and stuff like that. Machines and systems are getting more complex, but the level of the people doesn't go the same scale and that gap needs to be filled and the only solution what I see again are different tools under the umbrella of uh, digitalization which uh, can help and, and, and fill that gap to work more efficient with limited resources. That's uh, what, what it's all about. Absolutely. No, I, I like that very much. I want to follow that up with the question that we normally ask for some career advice. And instead of just asking for some general career advice, if people are interested in these, the, the types of tools that we spent this episode talking about, how, how can they learn more? How can they better prepare themselves for what the future of the workforce is going to be? Um. My advice in terms of learning is a, a multi-pass, first of all, through social media and specific LinkedIn, follow, for example, Manufacturing Hub Podcast and others to get refreshed with new ideas and new content in that area. There's on YouTube and other learning platforms, bunch of courses out there. Uh, Udemy is, for example, a, a great learning platform where you can learn specific things about IoT, augmented reality, cloud, everything under the umbrella of cloud. Then, for example, the cloud providers like AWS or um, Azure offer specific courses even for free through their learning man management platform. That's another great way. You can participate in industry organizations as a volunteer. Uh, that's always uh, a great uh, way as well. I do that, for example, with the Reliability Leadership Foundation and their uh, digitalization consortium, mm -hmm. where I'm connected with uh, industry practitioners and experts in that uh, specific area. And uh, we write uh, books about this topic and then talk about it in, in webinars and uh, conferences. That's another great way to learn and also to network. Uh, for network, again, LinkedIn is a great choice. Uh, network with your peers uh, in the industry and exchange because at the end of the day, we have all uh, the same issues and, and problems. Let's talk about that and come up with solutions. Absolutely. I think that is fantastic advice. Thank you for that. Thank you for that, Marcus. I and think always that... keep learning. Never stop learning. There's always something new and get into the habit of learning, reading and stuff like that.
no, f- fantastic. And, and on the, the note of reading, I, we're going to go ask you for some book recommendations. And I, I think you've been involved in writing a couple of interesting books. Would you be f- willing to share those with us, please? Of course. So these are the, the two books I participate. The first one is The uh, Purple Passport. Uh, both were done uh, with the uh, Digitalization Consortium of the uh, Reliability Leadership Foundation. And uh, this book is the, let me find the right page, give me a second. So there's a, a framework uh, of that organization, the, the uptime elements for uh, reliability and, and maintenance where they structured it like the periodical concept for the different chemical elements with the groups and then the elements. So they came up with that concept. They talk there about the reliability engineering for maintenance, asset condition management, work execution management, leadership for reliability and asset management. And this framework is already out and there are thousands of companies which already using that. The missing part here was everything under the umbrella of digitalization. And that's how we added that framework to it. More or less talks about the source where the information is coming from, connect the methods of, of exchange, the collection of the data at cloud uh, on-premise, the analyze part, uh, getting the insights, and then very important, the do take action from the insights and do with something with it. For example, make things more efficient. And then underneath uh, the, the base elements, data governance, which is very important, the oversight of your uh, organizational data, trustworthiness, which is a security strategy to protect uh, the organizational data. Uh, everything under the umbrella of uh, cybersecurity falls into that. And then, of course, uh, the digital twin, where everything uh, comes together. What's the title, uh, then, Marcus? Sorry, I want to make sure we capture the, yes, the full title. The title is the Uptime Elements Passport. That's a series, and that talks about IoT and uh, digitalization. That's more or less a framework book, uh, very uh, generic. And then the uh, second book we wrote is the uh, Implementation Guide. Uh, in here, we talk about the implementation of a digitalization strategy into an organization and everything what can go wrong with that. For example, missing leadership support and stuff like that. Awesome. No, that is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for that, Marcus. I am certainly interested in, in going to take more of a look into into those books. It's not often we get a couple of really pertinent recommendations. But yeah, it's not often we get a couple of very pertinent recommendations from the author for the first time we've gotten it. So thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for being part of that. And then the last question for you today, Marcus, is who should reach out? Who do you want to connect with? Are you looking to go have conversations with other people in the industry? Are you looking for customers? How can our audience help you? I'm open for everything. Best way to find me is on LinkedIn, and I'm uh, pretty sure you guys link my profile into the chat. Connect with me, chat with me there, and then from there we can connect into a meeting. 
I'm uh, interested in the exchange with peers, just talk general things. And of course, I'm also happy to provide more information about the digital toolbox, what we offer at the Digitalitum and how this toolbox can help you of solving problems and dilemmas. That is awesome. Thank you, Marcus. And thank you everyone for hanging out with Vlad and I today on episode 130 of Manufacturing Hub. If you have made it this far, make sure to follow Marcus Digitalium Manufacturing Hub, Vlad and myself, if you guys haven't made it that far. If you're watching on, on YouTube or uh, on LinkedIn, please feel hit, free to hit that and subscribe button. It helps us out. Thank you to Horner Automation Group for sponsoring this entire theme. It's been it's been a lot of fun so far, and I'm excited about the, the work that we will continue to do into the future. If you guys have made it this far on podcast, please rate us five stars and follow along and do all of that and subscribe stuff. I found that when I ask, you guys have you guys like and share, and we continue to have more listeners, which is super helpful. Feel free to tune in tomorrow for the next show and every Wednesday most Wednesdays at four o'clock. Until then, we'll see everyone soon. Bye-bye.